the time has finally come for you to learn how to study the Bible. Never been done before, never to be repeated again. This podcast shows you how to study the Bible. Turn back now. Remain biblically illiterate. Proceed and have your life changed by the Bible. The choice is yours. Right, people, let's get to it. I'm Reverend Ryan, a deacon in the Anglican Church in North America, and I'm in the process of becoming a priest. But enough about me. Let's get to why we're actually here. Today we are covering Jonah 1, 1 through 2. That's right, two verses and two verses only. But there's a lot to say and a lot we have to begin to do before we can even really study what is going on in Jonah. That is to say that we have to adapt our minds to the ancient perspective. Why? Because Jonah is ancient literature. Okay, so what we're doing today is learning how to study the Bible. We're looking at literature, right? And we're looking at the macro narrative. Where's the author going? What is the author doing? Why is the author including this stuff here rather than earlier? or even later. And as I said in the last podcast, uh, God uses or used the literary arts to communicate his truths in poetry, in historical narratives. So with that in mind, let's consider Homer, right? The Iliad and the Odyssey. Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, Orwell's 1984. We have Dickens, Agatha Christie, Jane Austen, All of these people wrote with creativity and an overall macro plan on where the the story was going in the first place. They're not writing to no end. They're writing to a point, and everything that happens along the way is presented in a coherent manner in literature. It's not a haphazard placement within the story, right? Somebody has to run up on a guy or the guy has to run up on a girl before they could ever fall in love. You don't, you don't make them fall in love in the beginning of the movie unless you're doing something like Memento. You guys remember that movie? But even that, even, even doing movies in reverse is for a purpose, the hook back to it when it all makes sense in the very end. That's why they started out with the end in some movies. And so the same thing is going on here with ancient literature. Just because these people were ancient, uh, we, we shouldn't presume or assume that they aren't as advanced as we are when it comes to writing you know, narratives or whatever it is, or poetry, and so on and so forth. And so that's what's going on. We have to think about what Dickens did, Orwell did, uh, Agatha Christie, Jane Austen. They're placing things at the beginning, in the middle, at the end, two-thirds of the way, and, you know, you can do all the fractions from there and figure it out yourself. But the point is, inspiration, uh, how, how God inspired people to write was with creativity, right? This is not having your eyes roll in the back of your head, and then the next thing you know, boom, the inspired piece is done. I said that in the last podcast, and I'll probably say it every podcast from here on out because it's something we have to remember. Inspiration by the Spirit of God is a process over time that happens with multiple people at times, maybe not every single time, but it also involves creativity, and that's what's going on here in Jonah. So as we study Jonah in Jonah 1.1, we have to adopt the ancient perspective because Jonah is not modern-day literature. It's ancient literature. 
Tonight I'm drinking some uh, Tazo, Tazo? I don't know, wild sweet orange tea. I do drink coffee, but it's night whenever I record these things. Okay, so Jonah 1.1, reading from the ESV as always. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Word of the Lord is not just this Yahweh rolls up on Jonah and all of a sudden starts speaking. But before we get into what word of the Lord is, let's think about how words are used. So uh, an example I like to do all the time is the Super Bowl, right? So 16,000 years from now, imagine somebody uncovers, you know, something that just says Super Bowl, uh, the newest one. Guys, I'm not a football fan, but I did look this up in advance to, you know, provide a semi-decent example. But Super Bowl, L-V-I-I, so the Roman numerals. And all they see is that on a sheet of paper. And they're like, Super Bowl, well, we, we, we know what super is and bowl is and how they used that back then. And Levy, uh, you know, so they're sitting there trying to pronounce it if they don't know about Roman numerals. Let's just say we had some catastrophic, catastrophic event. These people don't immediately understand, 16,000 years in the future now, what a Super Bowl is. That's called low context. High context is today where... You know, pretty much anywhere in America, even if you don't know about football, you know what the Super Bowl is. I mean, it could be to where I tell you, where I ask you, describe to me what I'm, dis- what I'm, tell me what I'm describing to you. Tell me what it is. You take the pigskin, you throw it back and forth. It's the one time in the year everybody goes crazy over this. Commercials. Immediately you think Super Bowl, or, or maybe I could give you a couple more hints, but the point is, you could say Super Bowl. That's high context. 16,000 years in the future, their starting point might be a bowl that we eat cereal out of. And so they have to dig into the history and figure out what's going on. You know, you watch these movies where the people go back into the libraries, you know, on the computers where everything was scanned and so on and so forth. And the, the, the newspapers, right, they were scanned from, I don't know, 1917 or something like that. Imagine the people 16,000 years in the future doing the same exact thing. But for us, we know what it is. And so Jonah's audience, when they read, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, they don't hear what Americans tend to hear, and I say Americans because I'm an American and I'm not, I don't know, Malaysian or something, and I don't know how they, what they teach or how they do it out here, but when, when Americans hear word of the Lord, they tend to, and I'm speaking from a pop Christianity perspective, that's popular Christianity, that's people who aren't studying, they just roll up, on, roll up in church on Sunday, they listen, they go home, blah, 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 and for, I don't know, I guess I'd say a large amount of people who are biblically literate, unlike the people of this podcast, of course, they, they, they've never read the word of the Lord. They don't understand what it is. People who don't read what we call the Old Testament, what I like to call is the Bible of the early church. What they hear, what Jonah's audience hears when it comes to the word of the Lord is the visible form of Yahweh. Now I'm going to give you some verses that demonstrate that, but, but, but before we go into this, let me just do one little more, uh, one more word lesson, maybe two more words. Okay, so I'm from Guam originally. We can skip over all that background stuff, but in Guam, how we say thank you is si maasi. 
Zeus Maase. Si is like we, you're pointing to something. Zeus is God. Maase is mercy. Oh, mercy, not thank you. So, so if you were to translate Sizuus Maasi into just just a literal translation, and then you give it to a Southern Baptist down, and and they read a letter, and you know Ryan's writing this letter, and I say Sizuus Maasi, what it translates to is God has mercy. Now, somebody out of context, right? Let's just go with the Southern Baptist for a moment. They're gonna they're gonna read this letter, and they're gonna say. Oh, what Ryan is saying here is that God in his mercy, Jesus on the cross and all that. No, that's not what I'm saying. And that person's going to say that because they're low context, not high context. They don't understand the culture of Guam. They don't understand where this stuff was influenced. Think about the conquistadors when they were doing the world domination tour. They get to Spain. They do what they, I mean, they get to Guam. They do what they do there. And they introduce the one holy Catholic religion good or bad in their, in their methods of introduction, they still introduce Yahweh and Jesus. And so God in, in, in the Guamanian culture ends up being the one whom we give thanks through. And so what we're saying is, thank you. But what we literally say, or let me just say it like this, what we're saying is God has mercy. What we mean is thank you. Words you know, you can say something, but you mean something. Everybody knows they've been in disagreements and all kinds of things. Everybody knows how that whole thing works. That's what we're doing. We say God has mercy, but we're saying thank you. We mean thank you. Now, now think about the word run. This is my last example here. Run means, and I'm saying this to you guys because we have to adopt the ancient perspective and understand how they used words however long ago. That's why I use the Super Bowl example with 16,000 years into the future. This, is, this, this podcast is how to study, learn how to study the Bible.org, right? Let's learn how to change our perspective from the modern perspective to reading ancient literature through an ancient lens. That's why I'm doing these word exercises. So we understand why we have to do these things, why we have to stop, slow down our brains when we read a phrase, and make sure we're understanding it in the ancient manner. So my last example is run. Define run. Pause it, tell me what you, uh, tell me what you think, and then press play and see if you've lined it up. Or don't, and just listen here. So run can mean the following things. A political run. Oh, but that's not physical, is it? I mean, yeah, okay, you're going to places. But that's not what it's saying, a political run. What about a refrigerator? Is your refrigerator running? We all know that joke, right? Running is a physical act, something I can't do right now because I'm recovering from ACL surgery. And then in singing, it's to go up and down a scale. Again, <laughs> something I can't do, at least not with that attitude. You can run into each other without actually running into each other, right? Oh, I ran into my friend down at the grocery store. Oh, you turn the corner and you, you, your, your face is smashed into one, one another? No. We ran into each other. We didn't, we didn't actually physically hit, but we just, you know, you know what you're saying. And that's, that's how run is used in that context. What about something running, into, running in the family, right? You go to the doctor. Do you have anything, any, uh, you know, um, um, well, I can't think right now. Diseases that run in the family? Cancer, alcoholism, or even bad humor? Okay, there's also, uh, am I the only one laughing? There's also to smuggle something, right? Running cocaine, or maybe a better example, running Bibles into China. But you're still running things, right? 
That's how run is used. That's a delivery. And then I don't understand this one the best because I failed geometry twice. Even No, once. I don't know. Geometry, it's not my thing. Algebra, A plus the whole time. Even pre-algebra. Wow, amazing. But the point here is running. Run is, is also has to do with math. It's the distance between two points. If I'm wrong, math freaks, then, you know, give me some grace because I don't know all things about math. But the point here is that words and their definitions are shaped by their surroundings. You understand how to interpret run based on your, your refrigerator running, you go, you're going out for a run, you ran into your friend, uh, there's a political run. The, the words around the word in question determines or shapes the definition. So when we go back to Jonah 1.1 and we read, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, what the ancient audience heard was that Yahweh came to Jonah in physical form, visible, physical form. Now, in the show notes, you, I'm going to give you guys an exhaustive list, uh, but here I'm only going to give you a shorter list. So if you're driving or whatever, you can go back to this later and check it out. But, but listen closely. This phrase, word of the Lord, occurs 258 times in 256 verses in the ESV. Now, like I said earlier, context, right? Context helps us precisely understand what is going on. And so not every single time the word of the Lord is used, it's not every single time do we have to interpret or should we interpret that the visible form of Yahweh is actually appearing before Jonah. That's why I told you context shapes the words or gives, gives us an idea of how to interpret it. But I am here going to give you examples in, in the scriptures that show that the word of the Lord at times is actually Yahweh in visible form standing before a human being. Genesis 15.1 and 4. You guys know that. The word of the Lord came to Abram. Abram. Came to Abram. Okay. Now think about 1 Samuel chapter 3. This is Samuel in the temple. And then especially 3.21. So 1 Samuel 3, verses 1 and 7, but especially 3.21. Now let me read that. And, the, and Yahweh, it says, appeared again at Shiloh, for Yahweh revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Let me read that again. And the Lord, I'm just going to say the Lord here rather than Yahweh, okay? But the capital L-O-R-D or L-O-R-D in all caps is a substitute. We talked about that, the Tetragrammaton earlier. It's a substitute for the divine name. And for those who are ultra conscious about mispronouncing it, even the word, even the pronunciation Yahweh is not the correct pronunciation. We actually swap out the vowel points. The consonants are correct, yod heh vav heh, right? But the consonants, uh, uh, sorry, the vowels are swapped out. So Yahweh is an acceptable form if you're one of those people who are concerned about mispronouncing it and kind of just misunderstanding what's going on in uh, Exodus. But we'll skip over that for now. So 1 Samuel 3.21 says, And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. You guys get that? He appears and reveals himself by the word of the Lord. And that's also in 1 Samuel 15.10. And then you have 2 Samuel 7.4, which is the word of the Lord came to Nathan. 
Now notice this. The, the text doesn't say the word of the Lord Nathan heard or Nathan heard the word of the Lord. It says the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Now you could, you could imagine a message coming, right, and, and using that word. But that if you read the context, you're going to find out that that's not actually what's going on. We have a few more examples here. 2 Samuel 24, 11. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, so on and so forth. Now, uh, David's seer, that's, that's an ancient, so again, we talked about paleography last time. You can date a, a text based on how the words are written. That's paleography. Well, also, I talked to you guys about, you know, how things are phrased. So let's go back with Shakespeare, right? My favorite example for some silly reason. Thee, thou, thus, saith, you know, wench, all these other words, right? Those are, to us, Old English words. David's seer in 2 Samuel 24, 11 is the ancient way to refer to what we now call a prophet. So you can tell that 2 Samuel 24, or just 2 Samuel as a whole, was actually written later than things that, that, that have the word prophet in it. That's just a little sidebar there. But, but the point is that in 2 Samuel 24, 11, the word of the Lord comes to the prophet Gad, David's seer. 1 Kings 6, 11, now the word of the Lord came to Solomon, and so on and so forth, right? So in, in all the examples that I have in the show notes and the PDF, you're going to see that I have highlighted the word came over and over. Now, I'm going to ask you guys, because you guys are all dil diligent students of the Bible, right? You're making time to study the scriptures. Let's face it, people. We make the time to do the things we want to do. Everybody makes the time to do the things they want to do. Make the time to read the scriptures so you can study it. So go back. Make the time. Read these, read, read these examples and see the surrounding situation of these scriptural references, and you will see that, that this divine being is actually showing up. The craziest one is in Genesis 18, okay? Now, I'm going to kind of go into this in greater detail. You guys all know that, and you know what? Let me, uh, let me bookmark my page real quick, and then we're going to turn to Genesis, Genesis 18. But, but we need to understand this concept, the word of the Lord, as the physical manifestation of Yahweh in human form. And the reason why we need to understand this is because what we call the Trinity, which, you know, that label is not found in the Bible. It came quite later uh, than when Christians were called the way. Uh, <laughs> it, came <laughs> it came after the people who were in the early church died, that word Trinity. What I'm saying to you here is that our Christian word or our, our basis for what we call the Trinity is found in quite literally the first book of the Bible and then from there on out. And, and so what I'm speaking to you about right now is that this is the historic apostolic Catholic faith that I'm talking to you guys about, right? The once received faith. And so in Genesis 18, let's turn to it real quick. You guys already know this, so, so uh, well, I'll just read 18.1. And Yahweh appeared to him, this is Abraham at this point, by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. Remember, guys, 18.1, and Yahweh appeared to him. 
He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. Do you hear that? That's 18.2. Three men. doesn't say three angels, which, by the way, angels is a generic term for messenger. It's a correct translation. Uh, it's actually a transliteration. But the point being that it says three men. The author knows how to write angel. Proof in point, or case in point, 19.1. The two angels came to Sodom. Now, angels in that context actually is being utilized as a messenger because these guys end up, they're called in 1822 men, and they're called in 18.2 men. But in 19, they're called two angels because they go to deliver a message. We don't have time to get into the rest of that. But the point being here that what's going on in 18 is that Yahweh comes down in human form with two other beings, and they're going to roll up on Sodom, and they're going to do what they do to Sodom, and we all know that story very well. But what happens? Abraham ends up speaking to Yahweh, and then he asks Yahweh to allow him to feed him. That is, Abraham wants to feed Yahweh and wash his feet. And then he asks Yahweh to rest under the tree. So this is not a vision. So what happens? Look at 18.8. Look at then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Okay. I want to get into a little uh, Hebrew root, uh, a Hebrew word lesson. I guess that's what I was already doing, but let me go two dreams down and uh, make this stuff make sense. So another way to translate what's going on here, and, and again, the ESV and all translations are an excellent translation, but you guys have to understand that sometimes people are uncomfortable translating it the way the text is really saying because they're uncomfortable with what the text seems to suggest. Let me give you a horrible example that might make you kind of, not. it's not horrible, it's just an example. There's a point in the Bible where a woman is told to uncover a man's feet. Go look it up yourself. I'm just going to be straight up honest with you guys. That's a, a Hebrew um, euphemism. I think there's a different word for it. Euphemism. I don't think that's the word I'm looking for. Anyway, I, I'm pretty sure it's euphemism. It's a Hebrew euphemism. Let's just stick with that. Maybe I'm using the wrong word right now. But basically, it's masking what's actually going on. It, when you uncover somebody's feet in the ancient world, what you're doing is revealing a man's penis. I'm just going to be honest with you guys. So there's a reason why they translate it, uncover his feet. Now, that is an excellent translation, but that's not actually what it means. And that's, that's why I say, Sizu Usma'asi. It literally translates to God has mercy, but we're saying thank you. But I'm only here speaking to the fact that sometimes we don't translate things into English because we're uncomfortable. I think another way to say it, and maybe this is generous, maybe this isn't, I don't know. Another way to say it is that I think people are trying to protect the readers from the Bible at times. And I don't know how wise that is to do. I know there's a time and place for everything, and I'm still learning that myself. In fact, I have a lot of learning to do. But getting back to Hebrews, I mean, sorry, Genesis 18, 8. Let me just read this again. Then he took, this is Abraham, took curds and milk and, and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them, that is, the Lord and the two men that were with him. 
and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Now listen, what do you eat with, you guys? A mouth, right? Tongue, teeth. Some of us have teeth. And where's your mouth located? On your face. For most of us. Some people speak out of somewhere else, but we'll let that one slide. So uh, Genesis 18, 8, right? And he stood by them. Another way to translate that whole by them is before their faces. Panim. Panim can be singular or plural. Uh, well, let's forget it. Just scratch that. Panim is face or faces. In this case, I think it would be a great way to translate it because you know there's third person plural ending that panim actually has. That's what makes it plural as a whole. And the root word itself is panim. But the point is that sometimes you can you can translate. And in fact, I kind of think all the time, or maybe most of the time, you should translate panim as face. But but people are uncomfortable to translate it as face because they're scared of it, of what it implies. It implies that Yahweh has a face, and we know He does, because Jesus is the Father, and yet He is the Son. And you guys get that. I mean, none of us really get it. But the point being here that Yahweh in Genesis 18.8 is being depicted as having a face to eat with, feet to be washed, and presumably a butt to sit on. Abraham knows he's speaking to Yahweh. You guys need to read the rest of uh, Genesis 18. Don't you remember? He's like, surely not you, the creator of heaven and the earth. Would, would, let me, you know what? Let me just read it so I don't misquote this stuff and people freak out. Okay, so we're going to go to uh, 1822. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the face of, that's not in the text, but it is in the, in the Hebrew, before the face of Yahweh. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. And then, you know, he goes on down. Now, let me go down to um, how the, last, <clears throat> the last part of 1825. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Verse 26. And Yahweh said, If I can find at Sodom, or if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. And then, you know, Abraham goes on and on. But the point is that Abraham knows precisely Whom, who he's speaking to, whatever it is, right? I always get that mixed up. Whom, who he's speaking to. He knows he's speaking to the creator of heaven and earth. My point here is that Yahweh is being depicted in human form. Now, why did I bring this up in case you guys forget? It's because in Genesis 18, uh, what we have here is God in the flesh. And then at times you have uh, David, right? Uh, the Spirit of God rushes upon Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 11. Later on, the Spirit rushes upon David. David the psalmist says, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Uh, the, what's his name? Samson gets overwhelmed with the Spirit. And these guys understand that, that Yahweh is in the Spirit that is rushing upon Saul and David and the psalmist and, and, and Samson. David and the psalmist are the same in this case. But they also understand that Yahweh is not just there. He, they understand that Yahweh is up there as well. And here, just because Yahweh appears to Abraham 
it doesn't mean that he's no longer in the heavens, right? The question isn't, it, let me say this, the question for the ancient Israelite is, Yahweh is how many? They've always known, we have always known, that Yahweh is plural and yet singular at the same time. Remember, he was in the fire and the cloud with the Israelites as they went out, but yet he was in the heavens as well. Sometimes he was at the tabernacle, right, with, with Moses, but he was in the heavens. So the Trinity is no new concept. And this matters because in Jonah, let me turn back to Jonah here. In Jonah, we find the word of the Lord, Yahweh in another form. And we know that this is part of the historical Catholic once received apostolic faith. That which has been handed down to us, the Trinity, what we call the Trinity now, goes all the way back to Genesis. This is an ancient perspective that we need to understand. And so the word of the Lord, kind of summing up, that, summarizing this section, is that Yahweh is actually appearing to Jonah, the son of Amittai, and he begins to say something. Now let's read Jonah 1, 2. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. I don't think that we need to investigate historically um, Nineveh's you know, evil, wicked ways, and all this other stuff. The text is pretty sufficient. It's pretty clear, right? You know, the point that I'm bringing this up, why we don't need to go into like, oh, let's figure out the ancient backstory and all this other stuff is because we don't need to focus on that if the author isn't focusing on it. What is the author focusing on? Well, it's, it's one line, and then it goes into Jonah running away and then being in the water and then being in the fish and then finally going to Jonah, I mean Nineveh, so, so right now, the text isn't actually concerned. So don't just get focused on Nineveh for a second. What we need to understand is what it says in Jonah 1, 2. For their evil has come up before me. Well, that's good enough for us to understand at this point. This is how we study the Bible. So I made this point last week rather poorly, and so I'm going to read um, from page 15, note 10, on Jack M. Sasson's Jonah from the Anchor Bible. He says, Jonah, Micah, and Nahum share an interest in God's attributes as given in Exodus 34, 6 through 7. Let me just read that text. So I'm going to jump out of the quote for a second and read Exodus 34, 6 through 7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, this is Moses that Yahweh is passing before. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Do I need to say that last part one more time? Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. You guys, not just yours, but the people you don't approve of. And I'm talking to myself here as well because, you know, I don't think I have just one log in my eye at times. I think I have two logs in my eyes. Or maybe you just have a big old fat log like a redwood in my face that I can't see out from behind. And, but the point is that, you know, going back to, going back to Jack M. Sasson's quote, Jonah, Micah, and Nahum share, share an interest in God's attributes 
as given in Exodus 34, 6 through 7, which is his steadfast love, right? Merciful, gracious, slow to anger, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Oh, and then uh, I'm going to jump in and out of a quote here. But Jonah is consistently placed within the 12, and then we begin the quote, and not, say, among the writings for a reason. The reason is because it is to be interpreted in the light of the overall prophetic message proclaimed in Exodus 34, 6 through 7. So this is, this is actually the key strategic point or area in the book, Exodus 34, 6 through 7, when it becomes quoted. But it's not actually quoted until, let's see here, chapter 4, verse 2. Second half of verse 2, where he says, That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. You guys, that's practically verbatim what Exodus 34, 6 through 7 says. And that's the key passage, the strategic area of the book, the lens through which we are to interpret all of the entire masterpiece, the literary masterpiece. And like I said, when you back up and you look at the canonical level and you realize that it's not just Jonah, that, that it's not just that point is not just being driven home in Jonah, but it's also being driven, driven home in Micah and Nahum, then you realize, remember, you guys, this is an oral culture where these short stories are read in a row and people don't have the TV to sit around in front of. They have these writings to sit around and listen together collectively. And so they hear three short stories, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, all speaking to one singular message, which is... God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Now, maybe some of you are angry and you're like, why aren't you finishing the rest of the verse? Because the text isn't concerned with emphasizing the rest of Exodus 34.7. This is how you study the Bible. You study it in context. You go with what the author is doing, not with what you think the author should be doing. So I'm bringing this stuff up today when we're talking about Nineveh. Because we're not to take Nineveh, right? This evil has risen up before Yahweh. We're not to take Nineveh and make it into a book where it's a book all of a sudden on evangelization, right? Or in, uh, what is it, Exodus, let's see, I mean Exodus, Jonah 1, you know, they end up drawing straws at a certain point to find out who did what. It's in 1.8. What is your country and what people are you? And he said to them, verse 9, I am a Hebrew, blah, blah, blah. No, that's not it. It's one seven. And they said to one another, the sailors, come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they, so they cast lots. And the lot fell on Jonah. So some people actually take Jonah, and in fact, you can go on and do a Google search yourself right now and, you know, say um, something like, is casting lots biblical? And there are people who are writing about whether or not casting lots is biblical. But the point, and, and where did they get that from? They're getting it from Jonah. Maybe they're getting it from somewhere else, but they're getting it from Jonah. Jonah is not written to give evidence or support for casting lots. Jonah is written to emphasize the message 
of Exodus 34, 6 through 7. It's not written as a book on evangelization from evil nations that you need, or because of evil nations. Oh, look, this nation is evil, so we need to go over there. No, this, this nation is evil. America is evil, and I am an American through and through. But America, generally speaking, is evil. You don't, need, you don't need Jonah to you know, cause you to go somewhere else. God can use Jonah to speak to you as an individual. But we should not take the book to mean that it's, you know, to, 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 we should not take the book and think its whole purpose is to, you know, speak about missions. We are looking at the macro view. And again, let me emphasize this. The macro view, the canonical macro view, is that Jonah, Micah, and Nahum, this is that Jack M. Sasson quote, share an interest in God's attributes as given in Exodus 34, 6 through 7. Three short stories in a row, emphasizing that. So the evil that's going on in 1-2, in Nineveh, that's not the main point. All right, let's move on to the fair to Tarshish. Actually, that's in uh, verse 3, isn't it? Well, you know what? Let's just go ahead and cover that real quick because it, it speaks to the point I'm speaking about. So verse 3, But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Maybe you could say from the face of the Lord. I'd actually have to go back and see if Panim is in there. Uh, he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Do you guys realize that that verse said the same thing over and over and over again, just in various ways? So there's an interesting discussion going on in the academy. Academia is another way to say that, where people are talking about just how rich is Jonah. Because the Hebrew seems to imply a couple different things, and maybe the Greek translation which is also known as the Septuagint, seems to imply various things. And so there's kind of like an argument. I'm going to read a you know, three or four sentence quote here from Jack Sasson's uh, Anchor Bible. A Jewish exegetical tradition has it that Jonah hired the whole ship in, haste, in his haste to escape God, and this notion permitted speculations on Jonah's wealth. And I'm going to skip over these, these um, the people. Uh, Rabbi Yohanan, actually, I mean the, the quotes that they're from. Rabbi Yohanan observed, he paid for the hire of the whole ship. Rabbi Romanus said, the hire of the ship was 4,000 gold denarii, an incredible sum. Uh, well, how do you say this one? Sonkino? Sino? I don't know. Talmud. Oh, forget that. Uh, and then Brewer in his 1912 thing with, uh, that I think is just really messed up, and we're going to get to that in a later, a later um, podcast. Because in, in, in Jonah 2, Brewer, in his 1912 dissertation, ends up saying that there's no way Jonah prayed what he prayed in the, te- uh, in, in the fish. But the text actually says that Jonah prayed from the fish. You just can't get around it. And so Brewer, like the previous podcast where I told the people uh, the Septuagint translation, ignored what they read in Nahal Haver. Brewer reads the text and just goes crazy and totally ignores what the text actually says. And so we really need to be cautious when we read academic stuff. But, but Brewer says the same thing in, uh, on page 37 of his 1912 thing, which is Jonah was rich. And then it goes on, and other people start to talk about, and this is on page 83, by the way, of uh, Sasson's um, Jonah, Anchor Bible. Brewer and others go on to talk about the various 
forms of wealth Jonah may or may not have. And you, you might ask yourself, well, why, is that, why does that even matter? If Jonah was rich, and, and Sasson, by the way, he ends up concluding that, yes, he thinks that the text seems to say, based on some punctuation things in the Hebrew that just we're not going to get into here, the text really seems to suggest that these sailors just got back into port and Jonah tossed a whole bunch of money at him and said, let's get out of here. I got to go now. That's what it says in verse 3. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of Yahweh. Why does this matter? Prophets have a special relationship with God. He shows up to them visibly. They're able to call out against him, read Habakkuk. They're able to get angry with him in a way that nobody else is able to get angry with him, and they're able to get away with it. I wouldn't recommend doing it. Prophets have a very unique relationship with him. Not only that, but, you know, it seems, really, it seems like Yahweh is the sole source for prophets. Maybe not Isaiah, because he was a priest, right? So maybe I'll have to go back and rethink that. But even then, because he was a priest, Yahweh was his sole source. Now that I think about it, because, I mean, read Leviticus. They don't do any work. They simply serve in the temple, and the people are commanded to give to the priests. So, yeah, okay, that does work, actually, in that case. Actually, you know what? Let me just look something up real quick. Sorry. um, I think I'm referring to Jonah. I mean, Jeremiah. You guys, I've never read the Bible in my life, so excuse my mistakes here. But the point being that, that Jonah's fare to Tarshish may very well have been a fat sum of money. And where does he get the money from? From Yahweh. If he really hires an entire ship to immediately leave port, which Sasson says the Hebrew suggests, then what we have is Jonah knows what to do, refuses to do it, takes the money God has given to him, and deliberately and intentionally disobeys and runs away. Does that, I mean, am I speaking to anybody here or am I speaking to myself? Because I know I've intentionally done the wrong thing. Now, if you read Leviticus, you guys, there's no sacrifice for intentional sin. Now, Americans as a whole, I think Christians as a whole, the globe as a whole, people who don't study the scriptures, everybody seems to have, everybody's a general statement, by the way, we, generally speaking, have a fundamental misunderstanding of what sin actually is. Some of you think, no, I know what, just listen for a second. When a woman gives birth in Leviticus, she has to give a sin offering. Oh, you never read that before. Okay. And when a leper has to get cleansed, they have to give a sin offering. The altar, an inanimate piece of wood, you must, you must give a sin offering. You must make atonement for the altar, which is an inanimate piece of wood. It has done neither right nor wrong, but you must atone for the altar. My point being that if we're not thinking in an ancient perspective, we're missing what is going on in the scriptures. There's so much we just don't get because we're not thinking like the ancients, and that's the purpose of this podcast, learnhowtostudythebible.org. 
we need to adopt the ancient perspective. And so Jonah here is doing intentionally, most likely, as far as money is concerned, right? Let's just, you know, hypothetical for a second. If that's what's really going on, let me say it like that, people. If Jonah really is hiring the whole boat, then he's taking the money God has given him, a large portion of money, not a small portion of money. And to me, you know, a large portion of money being lost is greater than a small portion. That's kind of a no-duh statement. But he's taking this and deliberately disobeying Yahweh. And what does Exodus 34, 6 through 7 say? Does anybody have it memorized yet? A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. It doesn't say keeping steadfast love for those who keep steadfast love for me. It doesn't say abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness for those who are abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness for me. It doesn't say merciful and gracious and slow to anger for those who are merciful and gracious and slow to anger for, towards me. No, it just says he's merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, forgiving your iniquity, your transgression, and your sin. And that's important. Because there's no forgiveness offered in Leviticus for intentional sins. Now, let me go back to Leviticus for a second. I think you guys get the point, but I really need to drive this point home because that's what the text wants us to understand. So listen intently, please. The whole purpose of the sacrificial system was not actually for forgiveness of sins. There was forgiveness of unknown sins and unintentional sins. I didn't mean to do it, knee-jerk reaction. I smashed my finger in the barn door or the, the ox, you know, walked over my hand and I, and I cursed the day I was born or something like that, right? And these people are doing these things and they didn't mean to do it. And they're forgiven. And they didn't know they did it. And they're forgiven. And the way they discover or discern whether or not they're forgiven, that is the way they figure out whether or not they're still good with Yahweh. Like, think about this. Have you ever been into an, in an argument with the person you're in love with? Every, I think everybody has, right? You go to that person, you have, <laughs> you have this argument, and you feel like an idiot, right? I mean, if you've really realized you've done the wrong thing. And even if, like, you just generally didn't do the wrong thing, but you did some, like, you, you know, like... You're accused of this, you didn't do that, and you can prove it, but you sure didn't handle the situation well. I, you know, gosh, I've, I've failed every single way, it seems like, in my life. But, I mean, eh, whatever. Just <laughs> Nobody's perfect, right? The point being that you go to that person, and what do we do? We say, so are we good? Is everything okay? Are we cool? Do you still love me? Do you forgive me? Are we okay? Are we okay? 
You guys, that is what the sacrificial system is. That is the lens through which the ancients, not the modern people who don't understand the Bible and don't study the Bible to begin with, that is how the ancients saw the sacrificial system. If they brought the, when they brought the gift to the altar and the priest and the, and the person took part in it, if the fire comes down and it's consumed, then they can have a sigh of relief because that the consuming fire that takes away the sacrifice that was offered is the yes from the offended party, potentially offended party. It's the yes that we all long for when we get into an argument with somebody, when we're like, are we good? And they say, we're good. Or they say, it's good, don't worry about it. Or, 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 or sometimes they even respond back with, you know what, no, it was my fault. The point being, obviously it's not Yahweh's fault, but the point being that like, you know that relief that you receive when you, when you put it out there, are we good? And you get that relief back, like, okay, this argument's over, this issue's over. That's what's happening in Leviticus when they go and they offer sacrifices for unintentional sins or for unknown sins. There's not a sacrifice in the world for intentional sins. And yet here we have in Jonah a story of Jonah knowing what he's supposed to do. He can't deny it. The Lord himself shows up in front of Jonah, tells him what to do. And Jonah says, ah, no, speak to the hen. I'm getting out of here. And he runs away. He takes his cash, goes down. And you guys know the rest of the story. And what does God do? Like, I mean, let's just fast forward for a second here. The next time God actually speaks to him is 3-1. And what's it say? Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Do you hear condemnation in 3-1? Okay, somebody's going to say the fish. Somebody's going to say he's getting tossed out in the storm. But the text shows that Jonah is saved from the storm through the fish. The text shows that Yahweh is gracious to Jonah in 2.10. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah upon the dry land. Over and over again, all we have is a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This is what the text is saying to you. This is what the text is saying to me. This is what the text is saying to the people on the corner at the, at the you know, whatever, you know, red light district or in wherever they're out. That, this is what the text is saying to everybody. Don't, haven't you read 2 Corinthians 5 before, people? God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, and now God is in you reconciling the world to himself through you, making us ambassadors, proclaiming peace and reconciliation on behalf of God. Some of you guys need to study the scriptures and start proclaiming good news, not bad news that they're dirty, rotten sinners. You guys need to, some of you guys need to really study the scriptures and understand what it says because you are proclaiming. If it did, if, listen, guys, if this doesn't apply to you, then, then just ignore me for a second. But if it does apply to you, hear what the scriptures are telling you to do through studying Jonah and through reading 2 Corinthians 5. God is a God who is merciful 
towards those who intentionally just don't give a care. That is the message we need to be taking to people. And that is the message in Jonah. Don't give me this God is a God of anger in the Old Testament and the you know, patience and mercy and all that in the New. Because you read Jonah and you find out that he's the God who is forgiving in Jonah. And he's forgiving today. Did I beat that point home yet? Well, let's move on to another subject. Okay, so what is prophecy? Once again, we're going to talk about adapting our minds to an ancient perspective. Prophecy, bearing in mind canonical placement and significance, right? Prophecy simply is God's word to people. When we understand what prophecy actually is, we, under, we realize that all books in the Bible are actually prophecy because all books are God's word to us. Romans 15.4, I think I said this in the last podcast. Romans 15.4 says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Okay, so this totally fits within the theme of the literary work we call Jonah, right? We're supposed to, through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, have hope. We're being encouraged by what we read. It gives us hope that Yahweh is a God who is merciful to us. We understand that, but prophecy, prophecy is not just this forth-telling right? It's not future telling only. It's just simply God's word to people, however he determines to do it. So there's, there's also another thing that's really interesting. If you read, um, uh, let me turn there, 2 Kings chapter 1, 1 through 18. And I don't think I'm going to read the whole thing. Maybe I will by the time I turn there. Let's see. 2 Kings 1, 1 through 18. So you guys know the story already, right? Ahaziah falls to the lattice, and then am I going to get well, right? And so he calls to Elijah, and verse uh, 1-3. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, oh, that sounds just like Jonah, right? Go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, Is it because so and so forth? So basically, the king who falls down goes to other gods and says, Am I going to get well? And Yahweh's like, well, what the heck? Am I not in Israel? Why do you have to go to another God? And so his prophet is speaking and declaring God's word to his people by saying whether or not he'll live. So, you know, a bunch of people are sent by the king to go out and basically bring Elijah over. And where is it at? Let's just see here. See if I can get my stuff right. Let's go to 2 Kings 1.11. Again, the king sent to him another captain of 50 men. So this is happening a second time with his 50. And he answered and said, O man of God, this is the king's order. Come down quickly. But Elijah answered them, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. What's going on here, you know, what I want you to understand about what prophets actually are, not just what prophecy is, but what, how prophets are understood, is 
What it actually says in Hebrew, and I'm going to use English here for a second, it doesn't say man of God. It literally says God-man. Now remember, Elijah calls down. He's like, if I really am a God-man, then let fire come down and consume all you guys. And this happened two times, and the third time was a charm in this case. right? But the point is that prophets back then were not just people who said something. Prophets were understood to be something entirely different, kind of like a quasi-divine nature. So when you interpret prophets through a God-man perspective, and Jesus was called a prophet how many times, and we know him to be the God-man, you begin to look at Jonah a little bit differently. They dressed a certain way. They spoke a certain way. And they were known to be, how would you say this, powerful people. They were understood to be in communion with their God. And so what that prophet says goes. I don't have time to get into all the other prophets because the other nations actually did have prophets. And if you read their accounts, I mean, it's pretty crazy. I guess I won't go there because I think some of you might get a little scared and it's not the Bible. But the point is that like other nations had prophets. They said things. It's recorded in history. Prophets are a well-known thing back then. But they're known as God-men. They're not called man of... Man of God is, once again, a masking translation of the supernatural elements of the Bible. There's, it speaks to a quasi-divine nature. And where's the proof, right? Like, Ryan, give me the proof. Okay, let's just look for one example in Jonah 3, chapter... Uh, Jonah 3, 3. So Jonah arose, this is the second time, and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breath. Verse 4. Now, pay attention to verse 4 and 5. Like, really pay attention. Because remember, Jonah's understood as a god-man. He's going to Nineveh, a non-quote-unquote Christian city, right? Non-Israelite city. They don't serve Yahweh, so on and so forth. Look at the reaction just from Jonah saying a very simple message. And then begin to ask yourself, well, why, why did they react that way? Jonah 3, 4. Jonah began to go in, no, I already went there. Okay, let me just do it again. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. How did that happen? I mean, does that, does that happen in your life? Are you able to just to roll up on people and you think you have God's word to people and it's producing a change? I mean, this might really make you check your reality on what you think you're hearing, what I think I'm hearing. And this is why we have to study the scriptures and really understand what it's saying so we can understand whether or not we have God's word to God's people. Because Jonah rolls up on a city and says a simple line, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. Jonah, a God-man, rolls up in a non-God-fearing, so to speak, a non-Yahweh-fearing massive city. He says one line, and they change. Prophets were very 
very different people. And they knew when they saw Jonah, how he was dressed and what he said, they knew this was some real stuff about to go down. That's why they called for a fast. And then a couple of verses later, right, you know, or the next verse, uh, the king go has, go, uh, gets on, wow, I can't speak, gets with the program and ends up doing it as well. So my question to you is, are you studying the scriptures contextually? Do you understand what the text is saying? Do you actually have God's word to God's people? And I'm asking you this because if you really do, there's going to be some fruit in your life. You're going to roll up on people. You're going to say this and that to them. That's what prophecy is. It's God's word to God's people. If you're in the spirit, if you have this, this amazing connection with the Lord, and he's going to tell you what to say. I just don't have the time to get into everything. I don't have the time to get into everything. I have so many examples, and, and I wish I could tell you guys them all, but I'm going to use a biblical example as well in, um, instead. Turn to Jeremiah 23, and you really are going to want to read this with your own eyes, so pause it or do whatever. And while you pause it or whatever, I'm going to take a sip of my tea. I guess you wouldn't have had to pause it then. Okay, so Jeremiah, an issue going on in Jeremiah is that the people don't want to listen. <laughs> they don't want to listen to the Lord. So they have, um, they have prophets who tell them good things. And they have priests who don't, you know, priests handle the law. They don't do what they're supposed to do. Everybody's gone astray, right? And so Jeremiah is called by the Lord and says he's going to, you know, the, the Lord says through Jeremiah, I'm going to send these knuckleheads, these, these prophets, these priests, into darkness, and it's going to be the year of their punishment, and so on and so forth. But then he begins to speak about them. Verse 18, 23, 18. For who among them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see and hear his word? That's what prophets do. That is what prophets do. That's the real test of a prophet, as Michael S. Heiser who has now moved on to the next life. That's what he says all the time. This is the real test of a prophet. It's not whether or not their word comes true. You guys, you have to understand that prophecy in the scriptures, there are so many conditional prophecies, and God is saying, if you do this, then this will come into pass, come to pass. And guess what? If it doesn't come true, it's not because the prophet is a false prophet. It's because the people didn't want to hold up their end of the bargain. This we know because we study the scriptures. So don't listen to somebody who says, oh, the test of a prophet is whether or not their, their future telling actually comes true. Read the scriptures, you're going to find out something totally different, including right here in Jeremiah 23. For who among them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see and hear his word, or who has paid attention to his word and listen? Now skip down to verse 22. Jeremiah 23, 22 says, this is God speaking. God speaking to Jeremiah. But if they, the prophets, had stood in my counsel, then they, the prophets, would have proclaimed my words to my people, and they, the prophets, would have turned them from their evil way and from their evil deeds. You guys, that's what happens in Jonah 3, 4, right? That's the results, right? Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. It was exactly what God wanted people to hear to produce what we would call repentance, but I don't think that that's a good word to use. It changed their actions. They put on sackcloth and ashes. 
at least for however long. You guys, if you're not standing in the divine council, if you're not seeing and hearing his word, if you're not studying his scriptures, you're not proclaiming the right words to people. Think about it in your life. And again, if this doesn't apply to you, then great. But if it does apply to you, then listen up, please. Know what you're supposed to say, first of all, through knowing what the scriptures say, because the scriptures are already written words, God's word to us already written. Be filled with the spirit, something I myself need to do, okay? I'm not trying to tell you something that I'm not working on myself. I'm bringing this stuff up because we have in the scriptures that same example. And, and think about what's going on in Jeremiah. The priests have God's law. Do you think that that caused people to turn around? No, it doesn't say that if the kings had done what they were supposed to do and upheld you know, my rule and my order, then the people would have turned from their evil ways. It doesn't say, God doesn't say, if the priests had done the sacrificial system and all this other stuff properly, then my people would have turned from their ways and from their evil deeds. It says, if the prophets had stood in my council, then they would have proclaimed my words to my people, and they would have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. You want the proof? Read Jonah 3, 4, and 5. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, a simple sentence, you guys. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The text demonstrates something very clear. You need to know what to say to people. And so I ask you guys to consider what's going on in your life. Look at the fruit of all your efforts. If you've been out there trying to talk to people, if it's getting rejected all the time, maybe maybe we should stop, you know, you know, just saying, oh, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Chalking it up, is that what they say? To, to people's sin and stop. Maybe we should stop thinking about people as dirty, rotten sinners, and that's why they're not responding to my wisdom and all this stuff that I have to. Maybe you're just not saying the right words. Maybe you don't know what the scriptures say. Maybe you don't understand that we have a message of grace proclaiming peace to people. God, it says in 2 Corinthians 5, God is now in us, reconciling the world to himself. Do you, have you sought reconciliation with the person you're with or with your children or with your parents or with your friends? How do you do that? Peacefully, humbly, lovingly. That's how you guys do it. I don't do it like that because I'm learning and a work in progress. In that. But I need to do it in that way. Okay, so we're rolling up now on the conclusion of everything that we've been studying. The purpose of everything that I'm talking about today is to emphasize how to study the Bible. We're learning how to study the Bible. So we understand now when we read Jonah 1.1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that grace. We understand now that this is not God speaking in Jonah's inner ear to be a missionary. The text isn't communicating that. It's actually Yahweh physically appearing to a prophet, 
The prophet's literally standing in what's known as the divine council to hear him and go forward. So don't read this book. Don't read Jonah 1.1. Don't be praying and say, oh, Lord, speak to me through your scriptures and tell me to be a missionary. And then read Jonah 1.1 and think God is now, just as he did with Jonah, speaking in my inner ear and telling me to go to this evil nation. No, if you want to know God telling you, just look at the Great Commission in Matthew. That's it. That's all you need. But don't do it with Jonah because that's not the purpose of why Jonah was written. Also, this book is not the condemnation. We shouldn't use this as a justification for the condemnation of others who are practicing evil deliberately because Jonah was practicing evil deliberately. And how does God respond to him? Favorably. And he doesn't bring up anything about his disobedience. God doesn't bring up his disobedience. You may say, well, what about the fish and what about the storm? I'm saying, what does God say in the text? That's what we have to go off of. Everything else we have to read into and apply and try to uh, be deductive. We're not doing deductive Bible study because you might deduce incorrectly. Inductive Bible study is what does the text say? What does it say? Just read it. What does it say? And what does it suggest? So don't take this book as a book, you know, to go and, and send you to be a missionary or to condemn others and think that you have God's word to go and say, God's going to overthrow your blah, 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 if you don't get it together. Because that's simply not what happens in the book. Lastly, it emphasizes God's mercy. And I really, I really want to emphasize this in the conclusion. If you think Yahweh's instruction in Jonah 1-2 is a reflection of an angry God, then you, you know, because 1-2, right? You arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. If you think here that God is angry, you're missing the point of what the text is actually doing. Pay attention to what's going on. Instead of obliterating Nineveh, we have a merciful God forgiving transgression and sin and iniquity, and that's demonstrated in this book. God's instruction to Jonah is not so that Jonah, I mean, so that God might go and destroy everybody. He doesn't have to, he doesn't have to give anybody an advance warning. He can just do it right then and there. The text demonstrates how merciful God is. He assigns a prophet. Remember what I told you? Everybody recognizes a prophet. He assigns a prophet, which is somebody all people recognize to be a messenger of the divine realm. This is not a modern-day story where a priest or a deacon like me in my collar goes and stands on the street corner and gets ridiculed for saying whatever from the scriptures. That that, that doesn't happen today. Do you guys understand that? If I were to go stand on the street corner in my collar um, in Sin City or whatever other place, right? It could be Christian Mecca Central for all I care because there's sin there as well, you guys. If I were to go and stand on my collar and say, you know, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus, what do you think is going to happen? That's not what's going on. People, people see my collar and they know that I'm associated in some way, shape, or form with the divine, but do they believe what's going on? People in this context understood the reality of the God that Jonah, uh, you know, represented, and they obeyed. And then think about it even further, because this text is not about God getting mad. This is not an angry God in Jonah that we have. This is not 
an angry God in Jonah that we have. What we have is Jonah knowing what he's supposed to do, and he runs away. And what does God do? He chases him down. How long? How long did it take for Jonah to get to Nineveh? The text doesn't say. But God chased him down. Yahweh practiced patience with Nineveh, despite the fact that their evil rose up to them. And then think about it even further. I really want to emphasize this point here. How many days of patience was he willing to give them, based on Jonah's message in 3.4? Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. If you are trying to make Jonah Make God an angry God by using Jonah. You're missing the point because he he takes a disobedient prophet, chases the prophet down, forces the prophet to go to Nineveh, and then through the prophet's message, gives them 40 days to turn things around. And what do they do? They fast and pray. And how does Yahweh respond? He responds favorably. This is how you study the Bible. You study it in the macro level rather than regulating one, two, out of context and causing, coming to this ridiculous conclusion that Yahweh is angry. That's simply not what the book, is, the book is communicating. We back up. We look at the macro level of Jonah, and then we look at the canonical level and see that Jonah, Micah, and Nahum are all communicating the same thing from Exodus 34, 6 through 7. These three books in a row are speaking about a merciful God. So don't twist the meaning. Don't twist the first couple of verses. Study the entire book. This is how you study the Bible, you guys. Don't depart from it. And now for my hardcore outro. See you guys next time. I keep saying see you guys next time. Talk to you guys next time. Bye.